Well, let's turn our attention to the study of God's Word. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin a series on Christ's design for a healthy church. It's going to take us a few weeks to work through this paragraph because it is so rich and it is so dense with truth. In fact, this is foundational material that will serve us even in our worship, in our fellowship, in our ministry at Mission Road Bible Church. Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read the passage that will introduce this to us in verses 11 through 13. And full disclosure, we will only get through verse 11 today, and I had a hard time doing that in first hour. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he, that is Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Yesterday we had the joy of holding an ordination council for our friend James Sullivan. He's finished seminary, done a year of interning with us, and is looking at what the Lord might have for him next in pastoral ministry. He wanted to be ordained, so we went through that process. Now, ordination for, for our church is a little bit more um, uh, involved than with other churches and is based on the ordination that I had to go through. I got to go through uh, in my own experience For three hours yesterday, we quizzed James on Bible content, on systematic theology, and on biblical counseling. And for the record, James did exceptional. I would tell you he got about a 99, and that's only because only the Lord's perfect, so I have to reserve perfection for him. So he did excellent at his his testing. But going through that, I was reflecting yesterday after the the day, and it made me remember my own ordination council many, many years ago. I studied for about six months to get ready for this one day. Uh, To be ordained at Grace Community Church, where I was serving at the time, you had to be very well prepared. Candidates were required. I was required to be able to outline every book in the Bible. We were required to be familiar with almost 400, actually it was over 400, characters in the Bible with exact biblical references as to where they were in the scriptures and how that related if it was multiple scriptures to other places and biblical references. We had to be able to discuss and defend anything in the doctrinal statement from a theological perspective. And then we were thrown for an hour into biblical counseling, into pastoral counseling. We were given scenarios and, and the inquisitors would ask us how we would handle these, uh, these situations just to test our thinking. It was a grueling three hours of my life that I will not ever forget. I remember some highlights that that still stick out to me to this day. One question that I remember. Rick, how many toledos are there in Genesis? Where are they and are any repeated? A toledoth is the Hebrew word for in the generations of. And I had to know that. I was supposed to have known that. This was fun. List all the prophets who ministered in Judah in order and give their dates. Give all the prophets who ministered to Israel, the northern uh, ten tribes, in order and give their dates. 
and tell us how any of the prophets overlapped in their dating. Not dating, but their dates. So explain, I like this one, explain the punctiliar and the progressive nature of the day of the Lord in the book of Zechariah. And then this was the last question that they asked me. Never forget it. I want you to walk through every chapter of the book of Revelation from your eschatological convictions and tell us how it relates. Let's just say I'll never forget those three hours. They were intense. Why such intense vetting? Why, why do we do this here why, with, with our own ordination process? Why did they do that to me and so many others who went through that when I went through mine? Well, it's, it's all grounded in, in the passage that we just read. If the pastors and teachers are involved in what that passage says to equip the saints for the work of service, to make them mature, to give them spiritual stability, to help them to understand doctrinal fidelity and doctrinal error, then it demands that those who do that have, have acumen, have, have, have training, have, have accountability. The goal of our ordination process then and what we do now at Mission Road is to see that a man knows enough to increase and sustain the health of the body of Christ that God calls him to serve. And leaders in the past and leaders in the present are integral to the health and growth of the church. What does it mean for a church to be healthy? We're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks. And if you read this passage as a result of these gifted men and what they're supposed to do in and around and with the church, it's readiness for ministry. A healthy church is united in this commitment, all the people to the tenets of the faith. We have a knowledge of Christ. It's crystal, our Christology is, is foremost in our thinking. Our maturity is becoming like Jesus. We have doctrinal stability and can fight off error. And we're faithfully functioning within the church. God has given gifted men so that the gifts in the body are rallied, encouraged, equipped, and informed to be able to support each other in, in a healthy existence with each other in the local body of Christ. Now, we studied last time that Christ lays before us the goal of filling all things by supplying people what they need, necessary to grow, necessary to mature, necessary to be, be um stable in their faith, individually as well as corporately. We know that we have one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, all these one statements, but we also, each one is given grace, each one is given gifts. And that's all review. Now, beginning in verse 11, the apostle outlines the results or the consequences of Jesus distribution of gifts. You remember what we, what we learned last week with, with Paul saying that based on Psalm 68, Jesus, like, just like David won a, a war, got the spoils of battle, and then distributed the spoils to the, the men who he, he had fought with and for, Jesus won the spoils of, of eternity because of his, his defeating the devil, his defeating sin, his, his gaining of salvation for us all. And he has gifts and gives gifts to men in the grace that's ours in our spiritual gifting. But here in verse 11, it changes. The focus is not on the gifts per se, but he talks about a list of gifted men who are to equip those gifts in the saints 
for the work of serving Christ and serving one another. In short, he says, it's not enough to throw the gifts at the church and walk away. They need to be managed by spiritual leadership. And that's exactly what he outlines in this. So what Paul does in this section, in uh, these verses, is he gives us three results of Christ's distribution of gifts. And these are loaded with application. Three results of Christ's distribution of spiritual gifts. Now, Usually, and, and again, this is going to be one sermon, so I had it all outlined and studied out, but we're only going to do the first point of it. But I think it's important that you see all three. First of all, we'll learn that the first result of Christ's distribution of gifts is gifted men show up, and we'll talk about that today and that alone. Next, it's equipped ministers. Those are people in the church who have been trained and equipped to know and to utilize and to serve with their spiritual gifting, to grow up into maturity, to be doctrinally stable. And then thirdly, we'll look at measured maturity, that we grow up to the stature of the measure of Christ himself. He is the standard. He's the one we're growing to and growing towards, growing in. So that's where we're going. But for today, we're only going to get through verse 11, Lord willing. Verse 11, gifted men. Now, this as is, is almost a little bit deceptive. If you, if you have a New American Standard and you see the word as in there in italics, it's, it's, really, it's really not there. So let me read it as, as, as straight out of the original language. And he gave some apostles. And he gave some prophets. And he gave some evangelists. And he gave some pastors and teachers. Paul makes an important point here, a distinction in Christ's distribution of the gifts. God prophesied through David in Psalm 68, which Paul referenced in verses 8 to 10, that the victorious Christ would share gifts with men, his redeemed body. The emphasis of verse 7 is that each one of us has received gifts from Christ, and they're all gracious gifts. They're demonstrations of grace. But there's a change in emphasis, as I said, in verse 11. The shift is from highlighting the gifting that comes to everyone, to the specific gifted men, who are gifts themselves to and for the benefit of the church in enabling and in equipping and engaging their spiritual gifts. Specifically, there are some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, before we get into the details of this list, know this. All of these men on this list, every one of them, have something in common. Every one of these offices has something to do with distributing, receiving, teaching, and regulating God's word. It's all about God's word, God's revelation. And there's an order to this, and this order we'll see as we get into the list. Um, it's linear. He actually tells us this progression in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God says through Paul that he taps certain men on the shoulders in successive order for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. First of all, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, Third, teachers, then he gives the other gifts. That's important. Apostles, then prophets, 
than teachers. Very similar to our list in Ephesians 4 without evangelists, and I think there's a reason for that, as we'll see in just a moment. Each of these gifted men are specially gifted to bring and to teach the Word of God to the church. Let me say that again. Each of these gifted men are, are, are specifically and uniquely gifted to bring, to receive, in, in the case of the apostles and the prophets, to receive God's Word, to teach God's Word, and then the, the evangelists and the um, uh, the pastors and teachers take the revelation that, they re- that the apostles and prophets received and they teach what has been revealed. This is important to grasp. Why? Rewind the tape to Paul's day. Let's say that you're sitting in the church in Ephesus and you're having this letter read to you. It's a letter and you have it and that's great. But you don't have the rest of the New Testament. So in that era, without the scriptures being completed, only the Older Testament, and maybe you have a couple of letters, a copy of Colossians, a copy of Ephesians, uh, maybe someone sent you over a copy of the Thessalonians' first letter, and you have these this bits and pieces. Until the scripture came together, God used apostles and prophets to make sure that everyone knew what they needed to know to worship and glorify God, to understand the gospel, and to be able to use their gifts for the health of the body. There's no gift, there's no talent, and there's no ability that can be used independent of the Spirit of God for spiritual work. Let me, let me raise a question that, that this begs. Are spiritual gifts, gifted men and the gifts that God gives all of you, are spiritual gifts supernatural enablements? Or are they natural talents and attributes that the Spirit of God uses that you already have? Have you thought about that debate? I mean, think about Peter, for example. Does anyone think, I mean, do you think Peter had the gift of teaching? Well, well he preaches the first Christian sermon. We, we hope so. You think Peter had the gift of leadership? Well, absolutely. You can go through Peter's very uh, obvious giftedness. Do you think that Peter was a fisherman in Galilee, and, and before the Lord called him, he was a shy, meek little fisherman who sat in the back of the boat and didn't say anything. And then when he's converted and he follows Christ, he becomes this mountain of a man. I, I doubt it. My guess is that Peter was probably a pretty strong individual before that. So did God supernaturally equip him or did God supernaturally use what was already there? And it's a good question, but you don't need to ask it. Because Paul answers it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, who regards you as superior? He's actually arguing back and forth with the Corinthians who were thinking some were better than the others. Some thought they were better than him. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He says, doesn't say spiritual gifts. He says everything. So if the, and again, the lists of 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 of spiritual gifts, I think are exemplary. They're not exhaustive. So I remember a long time ago, and I, I, I may have told you this back when we were studying spiritual gifts. I was in a, a small group and we were, we, were, um, about, we were sharing prayer requests and this dear lady um, said, you know, pray that I use my, my spiritual gift to the glory of God better. And somebody said, well, what, what's your spiritual gift? And she said, my house. And I, you, should, you probably could have felt my eye roll from where you are. Pfft. 
house is not a spiritual gift. That's ridiculous. I mean, where's that in the list? I mean, nobody has a spiritual gift as a house. And I believe that. Brick and mortar are not spiritual gifts. But then she went on. And she said, yeah, I, I, I want to be able to use my gifts and be hospitable and have Bible studies at our house and encourage people and do discipleship. And I want to make sure that it's a place that the kids can come and we have a basement with the youth group. And she, go, she went on to explain the way she was using her home in the exercise of these spiritual gifts. And I was very convicted. I don't think that was her best articulation. Her house is her spiritual gift. But she used her spiritual gifts in her home to the glory of God. What do you have that you haven't received, Paul says? I mean, is your spiritual gift singing? It's not on the list. Can you use your spiritual gifts in service, in worship, and in leadership? Well, yes, you can. So Paul basically says, don't be drawn into the debate, is it natural or is it spiritual? If God is using it, it is a supernatural way that God glorifies himself through the way he's made you and who you are now. In other words, there's no talent, no ability that can be used for ministry apart from the animating power of the Spirit of God, or said differently, there's no category of true ministry that can be traced to human talent alone or for a person's honor or glory, God uses it. That's for another time, and we'll get into that maybe in the subsequent weeks. I'm being equipped for the work of service. But Paul turns his attention to a list of gifted men. And this is worth our attention. The first in this little list is apostles. He gave some, some apostles. Now, Paul's already told us a lot about the ministry of the apostles back in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. If you want to look back across the page, chapter 2, verse 19, you are no longer to be strangers and aliens speaking to the saved Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built, Ephesians 2, 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. No other men, the apostles and the prophets. It's interesting, those are the only two he lists. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, you remember we talked about this in that passage that when you built a building, still to this day, but in the ancient Near East, that first cornerstone had to be absolutely square or the walls would be off. The wall of the angle would take it too wide or too narrow. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's the perfect beginning of every foundation spiritually. And that's, that's the foundation of our faith. And on that, the foundation along with the cornerstone Christ of Christ was added the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What does that mean? These apostles were the first one to teach the gospel. The first one to connect it to the Old Testament and the first one to dispense revelation that would become the New Testament. Who were they? A lot of confusion about this, and it can be confusing. In short, the word apostle means one sent, and an authoritative delegate, that's an apostle. These are the men who first preached the gospel with Christ's authority. And now the first group of apostles we know very well, and although that gets a little confusing and can be qualified, it's the original 12, but not really. It's the original 11, right? The original 12 had the office of apostleship with Christ in Acts 1, 
uh, verse 21 and 22, Judas is replaced because he defected with Matthias, which ended up being 12. But then there's some debate whether Matthias was legitimate because Paul is an apostle too. And did there have to be 12 and was 12 Paul one of the 12? I don't know. We'll find out in heaven. There are also those appointed by Jesus himself who would be apostolic, and that was Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, Paul says that Jesus appointed him an apostle. There were also other apostles. The apostles included uh, uh, were such men as James. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, James uh, is said to be an apostle. Barnabas in Acts 14 is an apostle. Andronicus and Junius in Romans 16, 7 were apostles. Possibly Silas and Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 1 were apostles. Apollos is said to be an apostle in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and 9. And this group served as apostles, sent delegates of Christ, but did not fill the specific apostolic office as did the 12 and as did Paul. Sometimes people say it's capital A apostles were the 12 and Paul and little a apostles were these other men called those who were sent. And taking a step back even further than that, what, what qualified someone to be an apostle? Could you self-appoint yourself as an apostle? No, no, no. Jesus gives us a hint. It's a sad hint, but it's a, it's a hint nonetheless. In John chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus said, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now think about that. Jesus in his wisdom said, unless the people see signs and wonders that accompany the message of God, you're going to have trouble believing. So to accommodate that, guess what Jesus did? He sent the apostles, the first delegates of of the gospel, out with, drumroll, signs and wonders. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, arguing and defending himself, I've become foolish, you yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I, Paul, inferior to the most eminent, the 11, apostles, even though I'm a nobody. I love Paul's little self-deprecation there. Then he says this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. By signs and wonders and miracles. Exactly what Jesus said. Now, there's a lot of debate about the miraculous, the charismatic gifts today. We teach in our church that these miraculous gifts were signs. In fact, we say they were sign gifts to identify a true apostle from a false teacher, a false apostle in the first generation of the church before we had scripture. But some of our charismatic friends push back and say, no, there's no such thing as a sign gift. However, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 clearly says that the apostles had gifts that were signs. So I don't have any trouble saying these were sign gifts. Listen to Romans 15, verse 18. Paul says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. There's this ministry. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. So that from Jerusalem and around about Illyricum, I have preached the gospel 
of Christ. So his preaching was accompanied with proof that what he was saying was ordained and commissioned and authenticated by God because of the signs and wonders that he accomplished. Even the writer to the Hebrews says, this is explicit. For this reason, we must pay close, this is Hebrews chapter two, verses one to four. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard that we should not drift away from it. Now, put that in your mind. Heard from who? For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, that was the law, the Old Testament law, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, through Jesus, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Heard who? Jesus. Who's that? The apostles. God testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So how could you be an apostle? Well, you had to first be accompanied by signs and miracles and wonders and that was proof that you were an apostle, not proof that you were a mature Christian. Add to that that you had to have seen the resurrected Savior. Paul discusses this in great detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and following. Um, am I, he says, am I not free? I am an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 to 10, he does the same thing and goes on and on. That's where he says that he witnessed the resurrected Savior along with 500 other people, some of whom were alive to that very day. Verse 7, he says, he, Jesus appeared to James, then to all the other apostles. He appeared to me also, one untimely born. For I'm the, I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I used to persecute the church, he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So putting it all together, an apostle is someone who has to see the resurrected Lord and had the ability to perform signs and wonders and receive revelation from God that served the church before the Bible was complete. Now I say all that to simply say this. If you had to see the resurrected Lord and have demonstrable signs and wonders and miracles, are there still apostles today? No. And if there are, you know they're lying because they have not seen the resurrected Lord who has yet to come back. So that was a temporary office that came and went. Secondly, the prophets, the prophets. Much confusion today about prophets and the gift of prophecy. Notice first that this is interestingly the gift of prophets, not the gift of prophecy. Those are different. They're related but different. He talks about the gift of prophecy and prophesying to the, to the Corinthians. This is the gift of prophets. Now, who are these men? These are men who along with the apostles were the foundation of the beginning of the church. Chapter two, verse 20, chapter three, verse five says so. Now, if we connect the gift, the function of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, we see that these prophets provided edification, exhortation, and comfort. They also did what Old Testament prophets did. They said, thus says the Lord, they gave revelation. Again, remember, this is the first generation of the church who did not have a completed Bible. 
The scriptures were not even all written yet at the time of the writing of Ephesians. Dr. Honer, and I've, I keep quoting Dr. Honer. He's my, he's my hero in Ephesians. He's a Greek scholar. And um, amazingly, he says this. The prophets probably revealed God's will to the church when the biblical canon was incomplete. They would need the prophets because they didn't have the whole New Testament. Since the apostles and the prophets were foundational, he says, they did not exist after the first generation of believers, end quote. Now, to be honest, there have been several attempts in recent years to redefine what a prophet is so that they, they still exist today. And this redefinition, the original readers would have had no concept to understand. Let me give you some examples. Some believe that there are still prophets in the church and these people are modern day prophets who prophesy but they don't, they don't always have to be right. They can do, and this is the proponents of this view, this is their word, not mine, their phrase, not mine. They believe in fallible prophecy, that a prophet can prophesy, but he doesn't have to always be right. However, there is no allowance in the Old Testament, certainly not in the New Testament, for fallible prophecy in fact, the Old Testament states in Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 20, if a prophet was ever wrong, you know what you did to him? You killed him. That's how serious it was to say, thus says the Lord, but that's not what the Lord said. Misquoting God was a capital offense. During Jesus' day, there were false prophets. Listen to what he says in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now that's an interesting phrase, sheep's clothing. Sheep, sheep don't wear sheep's clothing because they have natural wool. Who wears the clothing from a sheep? The shepherd does. Sheep don't have to wear sheep's, that's like saying, I'm a human and I wear human clothing. Well, of course you do. A sheep has wool, so it doesn't need sheep's clothing. Sheep's clothing was the wool taken, uh, woven as wool into a clothing, and it was the, one of the chief signatures of a shepherd. So he's talking about pastor, shepherd, spiritual leaders who are false here. Beware of them. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Timothy is told by Paul, be, beware. In the end, people want to have their ears tickled in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 accumulating for themselves teachers and their own desires, accordance to their own desires, will turn away their ears from truth and tune them to myths. So those who say there's fallible prophecy, that, that's, that's using your own dictionary for the Bible's words, and the Bible has its own dictionary for that word. Also, others teach that prophecy and modern-day prophets are, are preachers and teachers, it's a very popular idea, and I don't think that's the case. Um, it doesn't square with the fact that if, if prophets were preachers and pastors and teachers, why does he say prophets and then three words later says pastors and teachers? He wouldn't have needed both of those. Prophets were foundational men who spoke for God before there was a completed Bible, and Paul calls them foundational builders, and again, in chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 5. And last... 
Others misinterpret prophets today by saying that prophecy is the giving of encouragement to others from a biblical perspective. Now, I appreciate the heart of this, but it just goes outside the pages of Scripture. I've even seen certain churches with microphones set up in the church service so that prophets can tell the whole church their prophecies. Which is interesting because almost all of these situations, a pastor or elder stands at the microphone to screen the prophet or the prophecy to make sure that the church is getting the truth. So then who has the gift, the prophet or, or the elder? It, it, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. It doesn't make any logical sense that if you're a prophet, you have to be screened by another pastor. Consequently, there is no need for prophets or prophecy today because we have the word of God complete. Prophets and apostles were foundation. We need no other revelation. Thirdly, evangelists. This one's easy and this one's a lot of fun. Evangelists. Bearers of the evangel, the gospel, the gospel message. The best way to understand these gifted men is to equate them to basically what we know as missionaries today. People who carry the gospel to people who need the gospel, who may not have heard the gospel or are very confused about the gospel. Now, this is interesting, this, this word, because Paul doesn't use the word evangelist anywhere else in his writings he does urge Timothy, however, to do the work of an evangelist. The only other occurrence of the word is in Acts 21.8, where Philip is called the evangelist. Bottom line is these evangelists were, were those who went to places that did not have the gospel, and they gave them the gospel. Doesn't that sound like our modern definition of a missionary? He gave those for the church, for the establishment of the church, the equipping of the church, the work of service so that they could even encourage others to go with them sometimes or even permanently. That brings us to the last two words, pastors and teachers. Now, in order to understand this, I, I, I don't like to do this a lot, but I need to beg your, your, your grace for a moment and, and give you a Greek, Greek grammar lesson. These final two descriptions of gifted men for the church have really good reason to be describing the same office, pastors and teachers. And the reason is um, the, um, the presence of a singular definite article instead of a uh, uh, two. And let me explain to you, to you what I mean. A definite article is the best way we can understand it, that is saying, um, I'm looking at this Bible right here and I'm saying, this is the Bible that I own which is different than saying everyone has a Bible. It's, 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 it doesn't point out a specific one. Well, look at the, the definite articles translated in this, this passage. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. And if there's only one article with these last two words, it says some pastors and teachers or some pastor teachers. There's not two articles. It doesn't say some pastors and some teachers. It uses the same article to describe those two words together, which leads most Greek scholars to say that's talking about the same function and office. You may have heard people put those together and calling them a pastor teacher. Now, just a, just a little fun here. 
you know, in my study week in and week out there, my, my two most trusted sources in the Greek text are Dan Wallace and Harold Honer. So when Harold Honer quotes Dan Wallace, my antenna goes up real fast. Like they're, they're, this is compounded authority in the Greek text. And listen to this. Harold Honer writes, after a study of the grammatical structure of one article followed by two plural nouns separated by a chi, an and, as here, Wallace suggests, so when Honer goes to Wallace, man, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of fun. This suggests that the first is the subset of the second. And this is what he means. The best grammatical way of understanding this is all pastors are to be teachers, though not all teachers are pastors. Hence, while there is a distinction between the two, the distinction is not total, end quote. Let me put all that together for you. I think those two come together to say that he gave for the current edification and equipping of the church men who are shepherds and instructors. And their shepherding is instructive and their instruction is always care for the soul and it's, a, it's pastoral. The word pastor is the word shepherd. That's what it means. I was in New Zealand one time and um, um, we went to a, a pastoral show. That, that kind of freaked me out a little bit. Like, well, a pastoral show? I mean, is this a talent show? What is this pastoral show? It was, it was, it was a show to show how these, um, these uh, shepherds used their dogs to run sheep. It was a pastor show because they called their shepherds pastors. The Bible mentions... Over 70 types of animals. The Hebrew and Aramaic languages of the Old Testament employ about 180 words to use to, to talk about animals. The Greek New Testament uses about 50 words to talk about animals, and that's dis differences in distinctions, classes, gender, and ages of animals. And there are a lot of animals in the Bible. The Bible is a virtual zoo. There are clean animals and unclean animals. Domesticated animals, wild animals. There are cattle and goats and horses and camels and donkeys and pigs and dogs and snakes and frogs and bears and leopards and foxes and jackals and wolves and fish and sparrows and eagles and vultures and worms and caterpillars and locusts and even leviathans and behemoths and a lot more. Why the list? The most frequently mentioned animal in the Bible is the sheep. References to sheep and the flocks number almost 400 in the scriptures. And for good reason. Sheep were a central part of the Israelite economy. They were raised for milk. They were raised for meat. They were raised for wool and their clothing value. The sheep were also a prominent part of the sacrificial system. You needed to find sheep a lot. The Bible is a book full of Sheep. I read someone who said, if you read the Bible, it smells like sheep. It's very true. And where there are sheep, there are shepherds. Shepherding sheep in the ancient Near East is critical to understand if you want to comprehend the figurative references for shepherding people in the New Testament, especially the Bible. I mean, what the Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The conditions then, though, were very different from modern practices. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, especially if you've been in any kind of farming industry. 
There were no fences. You couldn't keep sheep in one area. They had to be trained to follow their shepherd all around. The shepherd slept out in the wilderness with them. He kept them with him all the time. They were totally dependent on the shepherds for protection against predators, for finding shelter against threatening heat or cold, to lead them to pastures where they could graze or they would stand in the middle of a rock pile and starve. It's always funny for pastors to say, sheep are stupid. To which I would say, yes, they are. And the pastor's a sheep too. In short, the shepherd was a protector, provider, guide, authority, and a constant companion to the sheep. And the shepherds were not a very esteemed group in Israel, by the way. They were an odd sort. I mean, think about these. These These are guys who live out in the wilderness with critters. They come into town every now and then. They stunk. They were dirty. Wash my sheep while I go in and get supplies. I mean, they were a nomadic, odd sort. Yet they were deeply respected at some level. Everyone knew that the welfare of the sheep industry was entirely dependent on these men and their own existence was dependent on the sheep industry, making them dependent on these men. Shepherds have actually been called the cowboys of ancient Israel. If you study the New Testament instruction on pastoral ministry, you come to the striking conclusion that leaders in the church are called to be shepherds. This is what says it, pastors, pastors and teachers. They're called to be shepherds. Also, pastors who teach. Now, one of the things we emphasize in our, in our uh, teaching at the Expositor Seminary that I'm so grateful for is we train our men to remember that they are called to be pastors who teach, not teachers who pastor. That's an important distinction. I do a whole lot more pastoral ministry than I do teaching. Oh, there's lots of study involved, make no mistake, but there's a lot more time between Monday morning and Saturday night than there is in my sermon time on Sunday morning. A lot more to do during that time. That's why he says pastor, teacher. It's instruction with the body of Christ from the word of God, but it's also soul care, caring for people, applying the word of God. Pastors care for souls in so many multiple layers. Hebrews 13, 17, listen to this. We usually listen to the first part. Listen to the middle part of this verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Every, I mean, I read that verse. I read it first hour and I'm reading it now, looking around at the faces and I'm in just a moment of terror that someday the Lord's gonna ask me and the elders that I serve with about you. And did we care for your souls? Did we equip you for the work of service? Did we mature you to the measure of the stature of Christ? Did we make you doctrinally stable? Did we warn you of false doctrine? Did we care for you? Did we confront you in sin? Did we encourage you in righteousness? Accountability is real for those who take on the mantle. And by the way, it's easy for you to think pastor and think Rick or Myrel or Adam or Aaron. 
The word pastor, poimen, and the word uh, episkopos, and the word uh, uh, presbyteros, overseer, elder, and pastor, in 1 Peter 5 and in Acts chapter 20 are all used together as being the same person. So a pastor is an elder, is an overseer, is an overseer, is a pastor, is an elder. They're the same function. Give an account for watching over the souls. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, 1 Peter 5, 1, as your fellow elder witness of the sufferings of Christ, partaker of the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God. We're not, this is not my church. You're not our people. You're, God, you're God's people. Can I give you a crude illustration? Every spiritual leader is in some measures babysitting God's children, knowing that the father's gonna come home and there's expectations for how those children were, were cared for. But you can't separate caring for souls and instruction and in teaching. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, give attention to the reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. The exhortation means confronting, correcting, consoling, encouraging. So it's application. It's not just reading the Bible and sitting down. It's not just having a care group where you you uh, read a sermon or listen to a sermon and walk away. It's ap- application. It's applying God's word specifically in people's lives. There's a biblical counseling, discipleship nature to pastoral oversight. And that's why he says three verses later, First Timothy 4, 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Why is it important? Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. This is eternally important. I can't leave this verse without looking at some of the men, especially some of the young men, and asking, will any of you consider giving your life to pastoral ministry, to the care of souls, it's hard. That ordination is a, I was talking about earlier was hard for six months. That's nothing compared to what the Lord demands out of pastoral service, but it's nothing in comparison to the joys of watching people grow in Christ. Who will be the next pastors? How does this apply to you? John Calvin's commentary on the role of pastor teachers is piercing. Talking about this verse, this is what Calvin says. Our true completeness and perfection consist in our, the church, being united in one body in Christ. No language more highly commendatory uh, of the ministry of the word could have been employed than to ascribe it to this effect. What is more excellent than to produce the true and complete perfection of the church, maturity? And yet, 
This work, so admirable and divine, is declared by the apostles to be accomplished by the external ministry of the word, preaching and teaching. And then he says this, that those who neglect this instrument, preaching and teaching under a man in the church, should hope to become mature in Christ is utter madness. That su- yet such are the fanatics on one hand who pretend to be favored with secret revelations of the Spirit, proud men on, uh, on, each, on the other who imagine that to them the private reading of scriptures is enough and they have no need of ordinary, the ordinary ministry of the church, preaching and teaching. Then he says this, those who neglect or despise this order, preaching and teaching, choose to be wiser than Christ, end quote. Look, I'm not trying to self-serve and justify my existence. I'm trying to say all of us need to be under the preaching and teaching and pastoral oversight of God's men in the local church. I don't know more than any of you but I've probably studied this passage more than anyone this week because the church has freed me up to be able to do that. It's not that we're smarter. It's just that the the Lord has given us the time to devote to this for our mutual benefit, which we're going to dive into in our own spiritual gifting and the work of service next week. So you you please understand this. In some senses, I'm looking at my notes this week and going, this is so can appear so self-serving. I don't intend it to, that, to be that at all. I, I need to sit under preaching. I, I'm so thankful for the other pastors and elders who shepherd and, and care for my soul. We all are sheep. We're under shepherds, or someone has said, pastors are really sheepdogs, not really under shepherds. <laughs> are we under the apostolic and prophetic ministry of having a closed Bible, under the evangelistic missionary ministry of having someone share the gospel with us, and under pastors and teachers, are we committed to have the word of God be the rudder on the ship of our lives? That's why you're here. I I love Mission Road Bible Church. You intimidate me. When I'm studying every week, I, I know I can't get away with anything because I have such good students in our church. If I don't show up prepared, someone will know it real fast. Thank you for that accountability. And let's excel still more and grow together under the power and the ministry and the exposition of God's precious word until we're mature and look like our Lord Jesus. Father, give us the grace we need to apply to hear your word, to hear Hear it through gifted men who can teach us, who've spent the time to know how it can apply to us. I pray for our, all the leaders in our church, care group leaders, Sunday school teachers, women's discipleship ministries and Bible studies that your word would have preeminence and authority. In Jesus' name. Amen.